Welcome to the Murthy teleconference series designed to benefit employers of foreign nationals. We would like to take this opportunity to remind you that the information you're about to receive is exclusive copyrighted material of the Murthy Law Firm. Accordingly, any unauthorized recording is prohibited by law and cannot be disseminated without our prior written permission. Without further ado, it is our pleasure and honor to introduce Attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, President and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm honored to have with me as my co-panelists, Kenya Sanders and Chris Drynan, who are going to go over the topic for today and answer a bunch of questions where I will act as the moderator. The topic, as you all know, is the H-1B cap cases for fiscal year 2017. So as we know that the USCIS continues to complicate matters by issuing a lot of RFEs, the landscape is fairly tricky and so we figured it would really be helpful for you as employers or HR folks to understand how the process works. And for some of you who've attended the sessions year after year, maybe there are not a whole lot of changes, but there are some minor changes, and there's no harm in understanding the background uh, repeatedly. So with that, let's get started. Just in a quick overview, mm -hmm. Chris, if I can have you just share with us briefly What's the H-1B cap and how does that actually work? Okay. Uh, Chill, the H-1B cap is an, basically is an annual limitation on the number of new H-1B workers, um, which is set at 65,000 uh, new H-1B workers. In reality, there are only about 58,500 uh, visas actually available since some of those 65,000 approvals are set aside for special programs uh, for people who are from Chile or from Singapore. Those are called H-1B1 visas. And those come out of the, the 65,000 that, mm -hmm. that are generally available. Mm -hmm. um, there are an extra 20,000 approvals available for individuals who have completed a U.S. master's degree. Um, and one thing to remember about that, it has to be from an accredited institution and it has to be from an institution that's nonprofit. Um, unfortunately, that's something that USCIS kind of ignored for a lot of years, um, but they've been very strict on that in recent years. And some people was have that a, actually in the statute or in the regulations that it had to be a public nonprofit, or is that something they quietly snuck snuck in much later in RFEs? Because before that, they never bothered with that whole issue. Well, I believe it specifically says in the statute that it has to be uh, from what the, the phrase an institution of higher education, which is defined in another part of the the U.S. Code. As a, as a nonprofit accredited or a, or a state school. Huh. Um, it's something that was essentially ignored for a long time, but recently has been... Uh, Interesting. So an institution of higher education, which to me would be even a private university, mm -hmm. technically would qualify. Exactly. But there's a, it, it is specifically defined in another part of the, another part of the U.S. code, another part of the, the U.S. law. Um, so Harvard and MIT and some of those wouldn't qualify? They would qualify because those are nonprofit schools. Yes, most of the leading schools are mm -hmm. nonprofit schools. So it's just a very, very small percentage exactly. that claim to be for profit. Right. I see. So universities and hospitals in general tend to be nonprofit. Those are nonprofits. Okay. You'll see some people have who do have master's degrees from from for profit institutions, and those do not work as as for the H one B master's. So, so for those candidates, obviously, you want to check off that even if they have a U.S. Mm -hmm. master's degree, if you're not sure, it's better off to check 
the 65,000 mm-hmm. under the general quota because otherwise they could be jeopardizing their even if they mm-hmm. get approved by the USCIS mm-hmm. we're seeing where years later they're coming back and issuing notice of intentions to revoke etc cetera, etc cetera, or deny exactly. it etc that does we've seen that quite frequently in recent years and okay wonderful thing. thank you chris mm-hmm. so now that we've laid down the broad territorial uh, sort of broad framework of what's an H1B cap and how it works let's jump about the time frame because i know that's the crux that's why we're here on february you know in early february trying to figure out when should an employer file these cases and how should the timing work so kenya can i jump to you sure um first of all what you need to determine is that you don't miss the cap boat mm-hmm. okay uh now the the cap numbers are available for each fiscal year the mm-hmm. fiscal year runs from October 1 to September 30th. Mhm. So as we know for the fiscal year 2016 which started on October 2015, the H1B cap is already met. It actually got met the very first week of April 2016. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, April 2015. Mhm. So in order for you to be able to get one of those cap numbers, you have to make sure that you get your H1 petitions in so that it gets counted towards the fiscal year 2017 cap now although the cap starts on october 1 2016 the petitions can be filed 6 months ahead of time mm-hmm. no earlier than that so you can file the petitions by april 1 so that is why the cap gets met the very first week in april is because everybody files it 6 months ahead of time even though the employment can only start on October 1, 2016. Right, and because of the timing that it takes to get the labor condition application or LCA, sometimes instead of the full 3 years, we may get a few days less or a week less at the end because it takes about a week to get that certified LCA approved and to include with the petition so that we can actually file it. so that it reaches USCIS on April 1st. Exactly. So all of that's juggling and hopefully if you're working with the number one immigration law firm in the world, the Murthy law firm, or if you're working with your own in-house team that is very familiar with all of these kinds of nuances, they will be able to hold your hand and guide you as an employer to ensure that you can get the maximum time without losing out on being ahead of the curve and filing right on the first date if possible or within the first 5 business days. Exactly. So I think connected with that is the issue of who is subject to the H1B cap and as many of you know a person or a beneficiary who has never had H1B status in the past would generally be subject to the H1B cap or if the person who was counted against the cap in the past but was outside the united states for one continuous year that person can actually choose to either be counted against the h1b cap and receive the full 6 years of h1 status but the person may also choose to use whatever the balance of time the person has on the 6 years from the pro- based on the prior petitions if the person had used only 1 year or 1 and a half years let's say they can now try to come back and use the balance of 4 and a half years as long as that petition was filed and approved within the past 6 years uh the other uh, exception is physicians who have obtained a J1 waiver through the Conrad now 30 program or as an interested governmental agency 
at, who got a waiver, they are cap exempt. So those J1 physicians are never counted against the quota or the cap. And then so, certain employers are exempt from the cap. For example, uh, if an H1 beneficiary is employed at or by a university and their nonprofit affiliates, as well as if they're working at or by a, a nonprofit and governmental research organization, then such an employer would be cap exempt. Well, it's obviously, as we said, important that the attorney make a determination if the employer is cap exempt so we don't have to wait then till October of 2016 for your employee to start working, but rather you have the flexibility to file any time with a start date, any date, rather than being subject to the strict criteria of the new fiscal years. Okay, so let me jump back to you again, Chris. Okay. What specifically is required for an employee or beneficiary to qualify for the H-1B status? Well, the most important thing here is that an H-1B position must be in a, what's called a specialty occupation, which means the position requires at least a bachelor's degree uh, in, or the equivalent in a specific field. Um, so if you have someone who's working as a software engineer, that position requires at least a bachelor's degree in an IT field. Mm -hmm. You have someone working as a doctor, that requires a, a medical degree. Mm -hmm. uh, conversely, if you have a position that requires, for example, any bachelor's degree, mm -hmm. that's probably not going to work for an H-1B. Mm -hmm. Or a position that doesn't require a bachelor's degree at all does not work uh, for an H-1B. Um, and also, the other side of this is that the applicant, the beneficiary or, or the employee here, must also possess that bachelor's degree or the equivalent at the time of filing the petition. Mm -hmm. um, that's important to remember because you're, if you're talking about an H-1B cap petition, you're going to be filing this in the first week of April. If this person is not going to complete the degree requirements until June, they're not eligible to file yet. Um, and that's important to remember. But that person must have the appropriate degree for the field. Again, if you have a, a software engineer, this person normally must have a, an IT degree. Um, so you have, to, you have to meet both sides of this requirement, essentially. Um, and also, uh, it cannot be any field. It has to be a specific field uh, to qualify for an H-1B uh, petition. Um, now, one thing to remember, we get this question every year. You'll sometimes have people who have completed the requirements for the degree, but don't actually have their, their physical diploma yet. Mm -hmm. And that's fine. Uh, if they've completed the degree requirements, what they've done, the courses or whatever requirements they are to get the degree, they just need a letter, a letter from the registrar of their school essentially saying that they've done that at the time of filing the H-1B. It's okay that they don't yet have the physical diploma, that they haven't, they haven't gone through the graduation ceremony yet. So it's interesting, even though the law specifically says that an H-1B specialty occupation must require a bachelor's or degree or higher education, even if you don't actually have it because you've completed the coursework, mm -hmm. at least you have it. And I think it's because they realize because of the timing that they need to be flexible with that issue. Mm -hmm. So, Chris, from thank you very much. Kenya, can I come to back to you? So in terms of the timing, when should an employer start to prepare for an H-1B cap case? Okay. Now, as I said previously, because the cap gets met the first week in April, Although the employee can't start working on October 1, you do have to prepare to file the case the first week in April. Now, um, before you can file the case, 
you have to also file an LCA and get a certification of the LCA. Now, the labor condition application can take about seven days to be certified. So you have to plan for that as well. Now, if you miss the, the, most, the, the very um, the critical element of um, filing within the first week is because, as we discussed previously, you have you know, less than 65 of the regular cap and then 20,000 for the master's cap. The way uh, USCIS works is that if they get more than the available visas during the first week in April, they run what's called a lottery. Now, this is not a lottery where you win millions of dollars. Well, it's probably more important <laughs> more for many important. people. Exactly. Well, I guess exactly. they'll settle for millions of dollars, too. <laughs> and they don't have to meet the H-1B visa. Well, but you still get bored out of your time and life, though. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so what USCIS does is they first get all the master's cap cases together, and they pick the first 20,000 for the master's cap. Then whatever is remaining of the, the master's degrees, they combine it with the regular degrees and they pick the 58,000 odd that Chris was talking about. So, yeah, that makes sense. So you're saying that the people with the U.S. master's degree from a nonprofit institution accredited university will then be able to get two bites at the apple. First with the right. master's quota, next to get the general quota, right. as opposed to somebody who's just got a bachelor's degree that has only got one chance to apply for the H-1. And as most of you already know on the conference call, uh, today that the H-1B petition preparation has really over the last several years become more and more convoluted and complex because the USCIS has been subjecting H-1 employers to much greater scrutiny, issuing RFEs, issuing yes. notice of intentions to revoke, even denying or revoking previously approved petitions. So it's right. just a lot higher scrutiny. And Especially this is true in cases of companies that have third-party work locations like IT consulting companies or where your employees are not working at your headquarters location but are in fact traveling or roving employees. So to have the best chance for success for you as an employer, it's very important for you to understand the documentary requirements and the current policies and the trends that the USCIS is following so that you can be more strategic and preempted by being more proactive. As I said before, either you have to do this and monitor it as an employer, your HR has to do it, your attorney has to do it, and if you don't have an, a law firm, an attorney that's absolutely proactive, it can really come back to haunt you because you only get one chance because once the quota is met, once the person, an employee that's very important for your business and your profit margin is not some picked up in the lottery, you're now talking another year, year and a half before the person can stay and may have to pack up and leave the country, etc. Obviously, as I said, mentioned before, because of the huge volume of work, because of the large number of attorneys and paralegals working here at the Murthy Law Firm, we have a really great deal of in-depth experience and cutting-edge knowledge on how we can be proactively protecting you and taking care of you. In fact, as trends are developing, as we see RFEs coming in, we are able to figure out how to try to proactively represent our clients to avoid 
them getting an RFE or if they get an RFE, how we can fight it and try to win for you so you get the approval. And that's the crux of the issue. So keeping that in mind, obviously you want to work with either Muthi Law Firm or somebody that's absolutely on top of issues to help you and your company get the approvals you need. So can I go back to you, Chris, if I can, with the issue now about what happens for an employee that needs to change status to H-1B within the United States? Majority, many of these students, many of them are on F-1 optional practical training. Many of them have optional practical training. If they got it for 12 months, then that would expire probably May or June. Uh, of each year because they get 12 months of optional practical training unless they are subject to uh, the employer is enrolled in the E-Verify program and they're STEM graduates to students, science, technology, engineering, or math when they get the extra 17 months. But otherwise, most people get only 12 months. So what are their options and how can they orchestrate it in a way to maximize their mm-hmm. chance for an approval? Well, as you mentioned, Sheila, as a preliminary matter, an H-1B can either be approved as a change of status in the U.S. or it can be approved for, for consular notification or consular processing, which means you'd have to actually go to the U.S. Embassy and apply for a visa stamp in your passport. Um, most people, uh, particularly students, want to apply for a change of status, so they're not required to leave the country to assume H-1B status. It's important to remember that the H-1B start date is tied to the U.S. government's fiscal year, which starts on October 1st of each year. So these new H-1Bs all start on October 1st. Um, If you have someone who wants to apply for a change of status to H-1B automatically going into effect on October 1st, they have to be in valid non-immigrant status until October 1st. Um, So, for example, if you have someone who's on H-4 status and expires in June, uh, they're not going to be able to file this for a change of status unless they extend their H-4, which is a bit far afield, but that's Mm -hmm. the the general idea here. Someone who's a student who's on F-1 status, it's a little bit different um, because they might be eligible or frequently will be eligible for what's called uh, the cap-gap extension. Um, And they can basically extend their student status automatically until September 30th uh, to allow their H-1B to go into effect on October 1st if they meet four conditions. Um, The H-1B petition has to be filed before the expiration of either their their student status or their OPT. Um, You have to request a change of status on the H-1B petition. In other words, you cannot file this for consular processing. You have to specifically request a change of status. Uh, Also, you have to request an October 1st start date. And the case has to eventually be approved. Um, Now, the CAPTAP extension automatically starts when the student's current period of F-1 status ends regardless of whether they have optional practical training or not. If they have optional practical training, in other words, if they're authorized to work at the time that you file the H-1B, then that optional practical training work authorization will be extended until September 30th. Um, If you have a student who is not in optional practical training, uh, or if the petition is filed during the 60-day grace period at the end of their student status, then they're allowed to remain in the United States until September 30th but they're not allowed to work. Okay, so what's going on with this whole thing? I know there's this hot issue that people are concerned about students and the whole issue of uh, cap gap. I mean, is that whole regulation even valid because there was the lawsuit and everything was put on hold and recently the there was a extension or something. Can you just share any updates? Well, that, that whole, uh, the, the issue with the lawsuit involved the STEM extension, which mm-hmm. was available to students who had a degree in a STEM field. 
essentially, uh, some plaintiffs plaintiffs challenged the way USCIS had made that regulation, and a federal court essentially agreed that there were problems in the way that the USCIS had made the rule. Um, currently, uh, USCIS is supposed to provide new regulations, and they they provided some draft regulations uh, a few months ago, which are still pending. Um, at this point in time, I they've believe they've obtained an extension. They've obtained an extension. I don't, off the top of my head, re- remember what date the extension is from the, that they got from the federal court. Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially, the federal court it has was told like them May twenty second, twenty sixteen, or something yeah, like they, that. They wanted a ninety day extension, mm-hmm. right? Because they needed a little bit yes. more time the than regulation. the court originally gave them. But so, do all of the students who are currently in status? I think the USC, uh, the uh, the CVIS. And ICE have specified, have confirmed that those who are concurrently maintaining status will continue to maintain their status and can continue to use the STEM OPT and all of those other benefits until they hear otherwise. That's my understanding. That has been a big concern for many students at this time. And for employers who are concerned about what happens if they have hired students who are taking advantage and who have F1 OPTs or STEM OPT extensions. And USCS has issued some proposed regulations which have. have, are very detailed and have some very beneficial, beneficial elements. Actually, they're applying to extend the uh, uh, mm-hmm. STEM graduates from only 17 months to almost three full years, or some some. You know, it's uh, basically an extension. Right. It's they are extending the STEM for 24 months, so they have the OPT plus the 24, so altogether they get three years plus the cap cap benefit. Right. Plus the so cap then, cap. So then yes. you're talking three years plus. Exactly. Which can be extremely, it's like almost the full time of an H1 petition the first three years. <laughs> exactly. Fantastic. Okay. Um, what about if the petition is denied, rejected, or revoked? Well, if the petition is rejected, in other words, if it's not selected under the, under the lottery, if it's later denied, or if it's revoked after approval, uh, the cap gap, cap gap extension ends. Um, and this can be, as I said, it can be rejected in the lottery, or it can be it can be denied because there's some problem with the petition. Okay, okay. So, what are the other factors to keep in mind, Kenya? Well, for F1 students, if they do qualify for the cap gap extensions, they do have to get proof of the cap gap extension. So they must contact the school DSO and request an updated I-20. Now, this is the student's responsibility. The student can't expect the DSO to contact them and inquire about the CAPCAP. The student has to be proactively contact the DSO and say they have an H-1B petition filed. So they do, they qualify for the CAPCAP extension and they need proof of that and they need to obtain the new I-20. Well, since most of the people on the phone call today are employers and they don't know fully all of these issues which students are supposed to take care of, is the employer protected for hiring a person that's authorized, or is there issues or concerns if the student, I mean, the student status is terminated, obviously the student is not in valid status, and then the employer is required to terminate the student. But otherwise, potentially, as long as on the face of it, the employee is validly authorized to work on F1 OPT or CAPCAP, and the employer is not aware of any violation on the part of the student, uh, then presumably the employer is also protected for not violating the uh, you know, rules regarding hiring a person who is employment authorized. Well, you know, if, if the employer has a student who has an EAD that is expiring before October 1, and if they, you know, and they need to have proof that the student is authorized to work beyond the um, the expiration of the EAD, then you know they 
probably would require the student to provide proof that they are required to work beyond the expiration of the EAD for the Okay, I-9 so they purposes. can't just rely on the law, the statute, or the regulations, the DHS regulation. They, you, you're saying, it, the, as employers, it is important for you all on the conference call today to to ensure that you're protecting yourself. Uh, yourselves exactly. so that there's no investigation or if there if DNS knocks on your door or an ICE investigator comes in that you can actually say we have verified that the employee in fact has obtained an updated I-20 from the school's international student advisor or designated school official or DSO. And what right. about the recommend? What about travel outside the U.S.? Is that permissible? Is that rec recommended? No, the um, DHS has. Um, recommended that students do not travel while the H-1B petition is pending with a cap gap because first of all when you file a petition for change of status USCIS consider DHS regulations consider that if you leave the country while the petition is pending that you have abandoned the change of status request so it's highly recommended that students do not travel when the petition is pending. If they do travel, then they do have to stay outside the U.S. until the H-1B petition is approved and they obtain an H visa and come back. Or travel in well, or travel and come back. I know there was that Efren Hernandez letter from years ago, and they said you can travel out and come back after the petition is approved. Um, when the person's H-1 is if starts from October 1st, and as long as the F-1 visa stamp is still valid in the passport, mm -hmm. the I-20 has been updated, and the person is then re-allowed back into the U.S. by the Customs and Border Protection at the airport by showing the um, and obtaining the F-1, the I-94, with the F-1 status, even though the H-1 automatically will, in that case, become um, effective from October 1st because the petition was approved with the start date of October 1st and the change of status is no longer pending with USCIS. But as Kenya correctly right. points out, it's better not to get into gray areas. It's safer to wait. And But if one has to travel, then rather wait till the decision is made on the H-1 petition so that it's not pending technically while the student or the employee travels abroad and re-enters the U.S. Exactly, Sheila. If it was already approved with the effective date of October 1, then, you know, the risk is less if they do travel and come back. But if it's pending um, when they leave, then it's a high risk that USCIS will consider the change of status abandoned. That's right. That's the automatic yeah. presumption of right. law that it's deemed abandoned upon departure from the United States for any change of status filed within the U.S. Exactly. So now that we've gone over a whole bunch of fairly complex issues, let's come back to something very mundane, just quickly go over, because I know there was a recent change in the law, end of December, where there was an additional huge fee that was slapped mm -hmm. on. So what are the current fees? Chris, can I have you answer that? Sure. And you're right, Sheila, there was recently a gigantic new fee that was slapped on to some employers, um, as if these fees weren't already high enough. Um, so true. So true. Mm -hmm. Well, to start off with, there's a base filing fee for the H-1B, which is $325. Uh, everyone has to pay that fee when they file an H-1B. Um, there's a $500 anti, it's called an anti-fraud fee. You have to pay that the first time you file for a particular employee. There's also a training fee, which is either $750 or $1,500, uh, depending on the size of the company. 
you have 25 or fewer employees, you get to pay the lower $750 fee. You have more than 25 employees, you have to pay the $1,500 fee. You have to pay this the first time you file for an employee and for the first extension. So the second extension onward, you no longer have to pay that training fee. The new fee this year that was just added is a $4,000 fee that have to be, has to be paid by employers who have 50 or more employees and of whom 50% of their employees are in H or L status. So it's not just H-1B, it's combined H, H-1 employees and L-1 employees. If 50% of your employees are, are in H or L status and you have 50 or more employees, you have to pay this huge $4,000 fee. And but it's a one-time. It's one-time. It's the first it's time you file for, for an employee. Uh, still a very, a a very, very big steep, hit. It's very steep because if the employee already has more than 25 employees, you're already talking 1,500 plus 500. That's 2,000 plus 325. That's 1,825 plus now 4,000 more plus presumably the government lawyer's fees. And if there are family members, presumably their fees. And if there's premium processing, that's an extra 1225. I mean, it's ridiculous. The fees are just making, I mean, I guess the government thinks that by doing this, they're going to make it as a disincentive for employers to hire H1 right. em employees. But let's face it, if there wasn't a shortage of high-skilled tech mm -hmm. workers in America, no employer in their right mind would want to just simply file petitions for foreign workers and subject themselves to greater scrutiny by different federal government agencies for no rhyme or reason. Okay, unless you want to add anything else about the fees, let's jump over to sort of the common issues faced by IT consulting companies. Chris, you're dying to say something? I just wanted to mention the premium processing fee. Yeah, I just mentioned it. Okay. <laughs> I just mentioned the 1225, right? Yeah. Yeah, I just said it's on top of everything else which is outrageous, mm -hmm. which really kind of eats into an employer's profit and the mm -hmm. reason for sponsoring H-1 workers. Mm -hmm. Anything else you wanted to add about that? Well, the one thing, premium processing does not allow you to work before October 1st. It only essentially gets you a quicker decision. And that, which is which is a, a benefit, of course, particularly to the H-1B employees, uh, but it's not it's not a requirement by the employer. It does not allow you to start work sooner. Good point. I'm glad you made that clarification, and I'm glad you raised your hands and waved, uh, <laughs> flagged me down for that. Okay, so what are the most common issues that are being encountered by consulting companies, IT consulting companies? or any employers where the employee is not working in the headquarters location but is being subject to being sublet or what they call headhunters, et cetera, um, or consulting companies. So the three biggest issues that we're seeing, either whether it's RFEs or denials after approvals in the future are, one, that there needs to be a strong employer-employee relationship because when the employer allows the employee to work somewhere else, presumably, there's no control by the employee. Second, the end client documents, which need to show a bona fide specialty occupation between the employer and the employee, and third, the work location. All of these are integrally connected because the bottom line is to show the right of control between the employer and the employee. So, Kenya, can you start off with describing a little bit how can an employer clearly show that there is a strong employer-employee relationship? And by the way, I know we're very cognizant of the timings because we always try to do with this teleconference between 30 to 45 minutes. Uh, so we're going to try to go a little bit faster at this point if we can. 
Um, the employer-employee relationship prior to January of 2010, it was easy to show employee-employee relationship because all you had to show was that you had the authority to hire, fire, and you pay uh, the beneficiary, the beneficiaries on the payroll, and you're providing them benefits. But on the January 8, 2010 memo, USCIS added a new um, qualifier to the employee-employee relationship saying that you have to show right to control. So now the employee has to demonstrate that they have to right to control the manner and means by which the work is done by the employee. And then secondly, that they will con the control will continue for the entire H-1B duration requested in the petition. So if you're the petition requ requires one-year duration, then you have to show control for the one-year. If the petition requires three-year duration, then mm -hmm. you have to show control over the entire three years. Chris, can you tell us how you can show that? Well, this all has to do with the evidence that you submit with the petition. Uh, the evidence has to demonstrate uh, that the employer has a sufficient level of control over the employee, especially if they're working at a third-party location. Uh, this is the most important context that this always arises in. And some of the things that will be considered will be uh, whether the petitioner has the right to assign essential, essential additional duties to the employee or whether it's, whether it's the client assigning those duties. Uh, what is the employer's discretion uh, over when and how long the employee will perform the duties? And who provides the what are called the instrumentalities and the tools necessary to perform the job? Uh, laptops, cell phones these type of things that an employee uses in the, in the course of their so work. So the more of those that's provided by the employer, the safer it is to show that there's some kind of employee-employee exactly. relationship. And as was mentioned earlier, the USCIS has repeatedly confirmed that the payment of salary or wages alone is not determinative. And in fact, according to them, is the least important factor. And, that, and so later in today's uh, discussion, hopefully we'll have the time to give you some tips or suggestions for how to either avoid the RFE or how you can clearly respond to an RFE on this question. So let's now quickly jump to the work location. Kenya? Yes, the work location, if you're, if you're going to be assigning the employee to more than one work location, you have to have an LCS certified for each work location and each work location has to be included in the petition at the time of filing the petition. If you haven't filed uh, labor condition applications for each location prior to filing the petition, and if USCIS issues an RFE asking for an L uh, LCA to cover the work location, you cannot submit to them an LCA that was filed and certified after the petition was filed. Okay. Yeah, then the the petition is going to be denied. Mm -hmm. So um, so that is that something you know very important to remember that USCIS requires an LCA certified prior to the filing of the petition mm -hmm. for each work site that the employee will be assigned to. Okay. And a related factor here mm -hmm. is is uh, USCIS site visits, which we've been seeing a lot of in the past in the past few years. Uh, essentially, a USCIS investigator will go to the work site that's listed on the H-1B petition. Mm -hmm. In other words, the address that's on the I-129 form, and they'll make sure that the employee is, is there performing the duties that they're supposed to be performing. Um, 
This is why it's so important, uh, in, in addition to other issues, that you have to file an amended H-1B petition if someone moves. And I think now with the matter of Simeo mm -hmm. Solutions case back from 2015, yes. I think that an employer, not only is there gray area any longer, it's clear black and white yes. policy, and USCIS mm -hmm. is very strictly requiring the filing of H-1B amendments after that decision. Exactly. Okay, so let's jump to the third big issue, which is the Enclined documentation showing the bona fide specialty occupation. So if the H-1B worker will be working on specific client projects, there obviously needs to be evidence of the projects in the form of contracts or purchase orders or SOW statements of work and a letter from the end client. Also, if there are mid-vendors involved, all of the contractual documents relating to the mid-vendors ideally should be submitted with the petition. Obviously, if there are cases where the letters aren't available, we have to look at alternatives, but let's go from there. Right. I mean, fundamentally, USCIS is becoming increasingly strict about having in-client contracts and in-client letters, verifying that a specialty occupation exists for the duration of time that is requested in the petition. So the in-client contracts and in-client letters must specify, describe the, the job, and, and, and um, make the case that uh, it requires a bachelor's degree in a specific field and that um, the employment or the project is going to last for the duration that is requested in the uh, petition. Now, the petition asks for three years, and if the in-client letter only provides for employment for one year, it's most likely that the petition will be approved only for one year. You're okay. not going to get three-year approval. Mm -hmm. What about the inclined letters, Chris? Well, all of us here at Murthy Law Firm understand uh, it can be very difficult to get these documents sometimes, particularly if you have a relationship with multiple vendors uh, between the employer and the end client. Uh, USCIS uh, is asking for for documents that are not within the employer's control, uh, contracts with the with the end client, statements of work with the end client, and a lot of end clients are not willing to give end client letters. It's just not their policy. Uh, we all understand this, so I can tell you that all of us here who work on H-1Bs are, are willing to speak with vendors, willing to speak with end clients. If that's required uh, to explain these, these requirements, to try to obtain these documents to, to give an H-1B the best chance of success. Oh, good. So you're saying many other law firms or lawyers might hesitate to speak with the end clients because they feel their job is just to prepare the petition, but we will go above and beyond to try to help the H-1B employer and the employees so that hopefully we can help to obtain the approval by going above and beyond by acting as we're part of your team, which we are part of the team when you're hiring a law firm and lawyer to do that. Okay, what about the issue of duration? The duration can be, um, you know, you have to show the duration either in the letter or by purchase orders, statements of work, which indicate the duration, letters from the end clients or mid-vendors that verify the duration. You can show project plans to show that and the project timeline to show how long that project will last and also how um, and how long this individual is needed to be on the project. Okay. Okay, so the employer obviously can utilize other forms of evidence to demonstrate the bona fide specialty occupation. However, anytime you use something in alternative documents without providing what Kenya just mentioned, the basic letters, the contracts, the statement of works, it 
will more likely result in an approval for a shorter duration of time than the requested entire time, or even sometimes maybe not getting the approval from USCIS because they have certain pieces of paper and documentation that they believe are critical in approving the case. So it's important to provide all of the necessary documents properly dated, signed. So that's your job as the owner, as the HR person to double check all of these issues or the immigration person representing or helping the company and its employees. So I know we wanted to focus a little bit about some of the suggestions and we'll go over it very quickly in a minute or two because we want to make sure we can wrap up in time for you. But there are certain proactive steps that you as employers can take to either avoid RFEs or can effectively respond to the RFE to obtain the approval. And uh, some of, we have a bunch of suggestions for you. So can I get started with between uh, Kenya and Chris going back and forth? Go ahead. Uh, the most important single document and unfortunately a document we're not always able to get is the end client letter. This end client letter should say that the petitioner, in other words, the H-1B employer, has the right to control the work of the employee. And it should say that the end client does not have the ability or the right uh, to assign new duties uh, or to send the the employee to a different workplace. Um, you also want to document the petitioner's right to hire, pay, fire uh, in an employment contract or an offer letter. Also, an employee handbook that's signed by the employee is very valuable evidence here. Um, okay. Right. Um, and to make sure that the employee signs the, the contract offer letter employee handbook, like Chris said. Um, and also in the employee handbook, you also want to mention, you identify who the supervisor is and the means that the employee will use to report to the supervisor, including information regarding performance reviews. Also, you may want you want to document how the beneficiary reports to the petition and how the beneficiary is working at an off-site location. So you want to document how they will report the timeline, emails, phone logs, daily, weekly, project status report forms. So you want to create a documentation of the methods and means and times that the employee is supervised by uh, the petitioner. You'd also want to document uh, performance evaluations. Most companies are going to perform a performance evaluations of their employees uh, yearly or, or twice yearly. You want to document that. Uh, if there have been actual performance evaluations performed, you want to submit copies. Or if not, uh, you want to provide the template that you use and, and your guidelines for, for performing those performance evaluations. You want to document the benefits that you give to the employee, uh, medical insurance, dental insurance, uh, 401k, things, things of that nature. Uh, you'd also want to document any tools or equipment that the employer provides to the employee. Uh, smartphones, very common this day, uh, laptop, uh, technical manuals, uh, desk reference uh, materials. Uh, organizational tools, these types of things, if you provide them to the employee, you want to document that. Now, the tools can also be the company's proprietary information and products that the beneficiary uses to perform his job. So it, these could be 
patented products, licensed products, trademark products. You know, these are all trademarked to the, the company. Uh, the company-specific project protocols, project execution procedures, manuals, guides, project plans, these are all created by the employee to facilitate or to, um, uh, to help with the employee's work performance. Companies' project progress sheets, companies' policy documents regarding project execution. So all of these shows that the company controls the employee's work and the employee is using the company's products, procedures, and manuals in order to perform his or her work. Okay, great. Um, as you can see, the list of documents and information is pretty endless, and having a team that completely can appreciate and understand the nuances and the ever-changing complex uh, situation that goes on with the government, with the changes in the law and the regulations, for the benefit of you, your employer, you as an employer and for your employees, is going to be critical for the success of your, your business and your employees remaining with you and getting the approvals required so you can continue to be extremely profitable and stay in business. Um, again, as I said, we're extremely mindful and sensitive to the fact that we try to wrap these up within 45 minutes. It's right around that time. So on behalf of Chris Drynan, Kenya Sanders, and our entire Murthy Law Firm legal team, we are honored that you could participate in today's teleconference on H-1B-related issues, and we look forward to continuing to help guide and mentor you and help you to obtain your approvals so that you can continue to be extremely successful, especially with CAP subject H-1Bs, because there's absolutely no room for error because you get only one bite at the apple. If you miss the deadline, you're waiting another year, year and a half to bring your H-1B employees on board. So with that, I want to wish you a very, very happy new year again. And uh, we look forward to continuing to help you and take great care of you, your employees and your business. Have a great day.